The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, he's a familiar figure in Shakespeare. The one who takes some getting used to. The fool. I can still remember when I first started reading Shakespeare and I thought, what the heck is this fool doing here? Why does the king keep him around? It might be a little easier to see why Shakespeare kept him around. He plays a role, entertaining the audience, lightening the mood, but also delivering truths. He can advance the plot, expose hypocrisy, change the mood, be the audience's stand-in. Polish critic Jan Kott once wrote, quote, The fool does not follow any ideology. He rejects all appearances of law, justice, moral order. He sees brute force, cruelty, and lust. He has no illusions and does not seek consolation in the existence of natural or supernatural order, which provides for the punishment of evil and the reward of good. Lear, insisting on his fictitious majesty, seems ridiculous to him. All the more ridiculous because he does not see how ridiculous he is. But the fool does not desert his ridiculous, degraded king and accompanies him on his way to madness. The fool knows that the only true madness is to recognize this world as rational. End quote. Isaac Asimov said simply, That, of course, is the great secret of the successful fool, that he is no fool at all. End quote. As a Shakespearean device, the fool is of literary interest, but I began with what I think is a tougher question. Why did real-life kings keep these fools around? Who did that, and why? Who were these people, and what were their lives really like? Historian Peter Anderson joins us for a serious look at fools today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I hope you're enjoying your December. A lot of snow in certain places. My friend in Germany sent me some pictures. Snow too heavy to remove at one time. She has to shovel in layers as if she's removing the white space from a typewritten page, a line at a time, only instead of her fingers doing the work, it's her arms and back and legs. Let's hope she's finally found her way to the bottom of her sidewalk so those neighbors can walk past her house. Maybe she can sit inside and see the tops of their heads as they walk through the chasm she's created. Okay, we'll get to fools soon. That's a fun topic and a fascinating one. But first, I saw an internet challenge the other day and it was this, to remove one letter from the title of a classic work of literature, 
in order to what? To to improve or <laughs> make worse, to change the work as much as possible, I guess. I didn't read the responses below the prompt because I wanted to be fresh. So instead, I put the interns to work to see what they could come up with. Are these going to be better than the original titles? More interesting? Awful? It turns out there are some of all of the above. Maybe not better, but a book that I would be interested in reading, at least. For example, Lord of the Lies. We dropped the F from Flies. You see how this works. So we have Lord of the Lies. That's a book you would read, right? Okay, here we go. The Rapes of Wrath. Wow. I might avoid that one, actually. Sounds brutal. Little Omen. It's a great title, Little Omen, but <laughs> it's a little omen, but with big consequences. Madam Overy. Okay, that might actually be an alternative title to Flaubert's novel. You could have the same book. Poor Emma. This next one I can't even say. The intern was bolder than I am. The C word of Monte Cristo. Has that been used as a porn title, I wonder? Most likely. I'm not really up on my porn titles, I'm afraid. Here of Darkness. I like that one. That reminds me of, of Cry Freedom for some reason. The present tense, the imperative mode. Here of Darkness. I like it. I think Conrad would approve. Oedipus the Kin. That's interesting. Actually, kin, you could have Kin Lear. Anywhere you have King, you could call it Kin. These, these could be the same, right? Just from different points of view. A little more sympathetic, maybe. Oedipus the Kin. Kin Lear. How about, oh, Lear. Yeah, we could have King Ear. The intern missed that one. That's that's, what would King Ear be? A spoof, a satire, or or maybe some kid's book about a man with a with big ears, or one giant ear, King Ear. We have better ones coming up, people. So here we go. Here's the list. The Lion, the Itch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> Not as good as the original. I don't think a crazed author maybe writing that one. Maybe that's Stephen King when he's zooming on cocaine, <laughs> writing Cujo and then forgetting all about it. The Lion, the Itch, and the Wardrobe. Okay, Invisible Ma. I like this one. Not the Ralph Ellison classic, but that's a book I would read. Invisible Ma. Speaking of which, I would also read The Old Ma and the Sea. Not sure Hemingway would be the... The one to write that book, but I would read it. Here we go. Proust. Can't escape Proust, can we? In Search of Lost Tim. Oh, that's good. Maybe not a 2,000-page book. Maybe just a tight 200. But then again, then again, maybe it would be 2,000 pages, depending on who Tim is and, and what it takes to find him. We could also have a few others in this same category of of time becoming Tim. a dance to the music of Tim or the Tim machine or how about a wrinkle in Tim all intriguing 
Henry James could have written this one for us. The Portrait of a Lad. Be a very different book, different character, but still one that Henry James could have tackled. Speaking of which, Cervantes might have given us On Quixote, which could actually be the same book, now that I think about it. On Quixote. Don Quixote's better. On Quixote would work in a pinch. If you ran out of D's, I guess. If the typographer ran out of D's, for example, just go with On Quixote. Or we can play with digits. Here's a couple. Ten years of solitude. Or I guess you could drop the one and have zero, zero years of solitude. Or you could have zero, zero, one Arabian Nights. Hmm. Not sure about those. Okay. Another topographer has lost his capital D and gives us Moby Ick. <laughs> okay, I guess that's better than Mob Dick. Hmm. Moving on to Tolstoy. War and Pace. That would be appropriate for Tolstoy, the master of narrative time. Move on to Shakespeare. Rome and Juliet. Maybe that's the sequel. Juliet wakes up, heads to Rome, and falls in love with someone new. I would read it. Adventures of Huckleberry Inn is a book I would read. I would go to Huckleberry Inn. Let's have some American Balzac write this one. Washington Irving, maybe, could write it. How about this one? Lice's Adventures in Wonderland. Poor Lice. Doesn't even have a name. Just Lice. Gonna have some adventure. Except, wait. Is it Lice the plural? That's not gonna work. It'd have to be Louse's Adventures. Larry the Louse's Adventures in Wonderland. I think we'd better stick with Alice. Oh, the Lighthouse. Okay, that's not bad. Same vein, we could have Oh, the Road, which is not as good as On the Road, but that could still be the same book. Oh, the Road. Kerouac could have written that. I like this one. <laughs> Here's, I really like this one. Even though, <laughs> excuse me, even though, I don't know why I like this one. Catch Two. It's the speed read version. Of the Joseph Heller class, the abridged version, 10 pages tops, in and out. There you go. Get on with your day. Catch two. The sound and the fur. F-U-R. Fur. What would that even be? I'm picturing Puget Sound and some trappers. Daniel Boone out there in Seattle. Something like that. A book Jack London might have written. The sound and the fur. How about this? The intern pushes a little hard here and adds a hyphen. E-loved. Not sure that's allowed to add a hyphen after E. E-loved. That would be about catfishing, wouldn't it? We'd better let the Toni Morrison masterpiece stand as it is. Voltaire's Candid. Not the same as Candide. Maybe that'd be a good name for Voltaire's memoir. Candid. By Voltaire. Hmm. Here we go. Fur of a different sort. Pale fur. Nabokov writes about a, a tree, I guess. A washed out tree. Pale 
Fire is such a good title. I don't want to mess with it. Okay, here's one. This is pretty good. One with the wind. That's good. That's so good. I love it. How Or how about this? Gone with the wind. An athlete retiring at just the right time. Either one. There we go. Or this one. Brave Ew World. <laughs> A dystopian future. That could be the same. Huxley's book could have been called that, I suppose. Brave Ew World. How about this? The Rave. Actually, wait. The Rave. What is Oh, the Grave? The Brave? No. The Raven. Okay. We'll drop Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe has shown up at the party. Offering. Here we go, people. The Rave. Rave. Or it could refer to something in his time, like the plague, some new disease that's sweeping through Baltimore, taking over. Okay. The Goo Soldier. Oh, poor Ford Maddox Ford. His book, I'm not sure I'll ever think of it in the same way. You know we love that book. We've talked about it a million times. The Good Soldier. Well, The Goo Soldier. <laughs> Who wrote this one? I might need to promote this intern. Okay. The Canterbury Ales. I would drink those. While thinking about the wife of Bath, of course, I would toast her while doing it. I'll have a pint of one of your finest Canterbury Ales. Vanity Air. I like that one. Oh, oh, the next one is genius. Interns, you are going to be moving up. Laughter House that is a wonderful title. Vonnegut must have noticed that. Laughter and slaughter are so close in spelling and so far apart, although maybe not. Mm, the power of a single letter. Vonnegut, I bet Vonnegut noticed that and talked about it. He probably made that pun up before any of the rest of us got to it. Okay, speaking of which... Charlotte's we would be different, wouldn't it? But then again, maybe not. Charlotte was all about we, we the barnyard animals. In real life, spiders, they're about as selfish as it gets. What do they do for anyone else, really? Those webs are not ornamental people. They're death traps. But Charlotte was different. Charlotte's we. Here we go. Confessions of Eno, <laughs> Brian Eno's tell-all book, or this one is even better, Confessions of Zen. I like that one. Not sure Italo Zevo, Zvevo would be the right person to write it, but I would open the cover and, and see what was in it. Okay, here we go. Of Mice and Me. My wife could write this one. It would be, it would be one long shout. <laughs> ah. You could have 200 pages of the letter A with an H at the end. Or no, it would have to start with a W. A W, 200 pages of A's, and an H. <laughs> That's Of Mice and Her. Of Mice and Me. Is Of Mice and Me better than Of Ice and Men? Sounds like a hockey memoir. Or Of Mike and Men. Mike spelled M-I-C. That's all about the podcasting revolution. 
of Mike and Men. Too many Mikes, too many men, myself included. Moving on. The ill on the floss. I'll stick with the mill, I think. I'm imagining George Eliot lying on the side of the river and vomiting. No thanks. How about the mill on the loss? Or the mill on the flows? No? Moving on. White nose. <laughs> okay. Again, I've got to promote some of these interns. White nose, is just, that's exquisite. That's about cocaine, isn't it? Don DeLillo's memoir of his cokehead years. Speaking of Stephen King, just kidding. I don't know if Don DeLillo ever had any cocaine years. Kind of doubt it. Stephen King, though, could write that one. White nose. Or it could be a, a novel. Don DeLillo, it doesn't have to be a memoir. Don DeLillo takes on 70s New York or Hollywood or 1980s Miami. Tells us all about the Kennedys and their secret connection with the Escobars, which I just made up. Okay, last one. Your, your I don't even understand this one. Your mutual friend. Your is you are. I guess sort of the internet shorthand for your that instead of our mutual friend, your mutual friend. Okay. The intern passed over our mutual fiend, which would be a great title, maybe an Elena Ferrante book. Your mutual friend doesn't really make sense, does it? Who is the mutuality with? Are you talking to you, plural, maybe? The two of you have a mutual friend, and I'm going to tell you about it. Anyway, there we have it. The power of a single letter dropped from a great title. Good thing writers take these things seriously. Attentive and not insane. That's the low bar to clear. Thank you, interns. Great job, as always. You're in line for your Christmas bonus, or should I say, onus. The power of a single letter, indeed. No, no, don't worry. I'm not a Grinch. We will do bonuses. My heart's always been this big. That reminds me of something I heard someone say once. This was in Taiwan, where I was living a bunch among a bunch of rough characters. These expatriates, half of them were criminals on the run from one country or another, <laughs> one or more than one, hoping to avoid extradition, hiding out in Taiwan in the coastal city where I lived, down by the ports. There was this guy, Rene, who was about as mean as it gets, and one day he showed up at a party. He had had a kind of transformation, and a guy that I knew said, oh, your hair looks nice, Rene. And he said, my hair's always been curly. And it hadn't been. It had always been straight. And now it was in these big ringlets. And my friend didn't know what to say. <laughs> Your hair looks nice, Renee. My hair's always been curly. Well, my, so my friend said, oh, well, I, I meant the color. Because Renee's hair had also always been brown and starting to gray. And now it was dyed bright canary yellow. It was like he'd shown up in a disguise in a blonde, curly wig, like a clown or someone about to rob a bank. And Renee said, my hair's always been this color. And I thought, what a piece of work Renee is. The guy had brown and gray hair, straight. Suddenly he shows up at a party underneath new hair, what looks like a blonde, curly wig, and he's obviously uptight about it, embarrassed. And instead of just owning it, he's snarling about it, lashing out. And anybody who comments, gaslighting all the people who have seen him. That's the battle he chose to have, to be that guy. Terrified that people will bring up his hair. Not just to say, yeah, thanks, 
didn't turn out how I wanted or something or, oh, yeah, well, let's talk about something else. Nope. He had to avoid reality and ask everyone else to avoid it, too. People are so strange sometimes. I would say that Renee was a fool, but in honor of today's topic, I'll say that what he needed was a fool to point out to him what was obvious to everyone else. And so we turn to Peter Anderson to look at real-life historical fools. And then we will do a my last book. Let's see. How about Ed Simon, who was here to discuss Milton? Will he choose something Miltonic or something non-Miltonic? We will see. That's all coming up after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Peter K. Anderson, who is a senior lecturer in history at Orebro University in Sweden, with an expertise in popular culture, everyday life, and street life, mainly during the late 19th century. He's here today to discuss his book, Fool, in Search of Henry VIII's Closest Man. Peter K. Anderson, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you very much. So, let's start with some... Portraits of Henry VIII, which you call our attention to in your book. He's standing there in his early 16th century regal splendor. But who is the gaunt, morose-looking man with a shaved head, sometimes with a monkey on his shoulder, who pops up in these pictures? <laughs> yes, you can see in quite a lot of uh, family portraits from uh, the family of Henry VIII and his successors, this man standing in the background, in the shadows, looking quite mysterious, looking looking quite serious. And this is actually the man that my book is about, uh, William Summer or Will Summer. And he was King Henry VIII's fool. He was the mm. king's fool from about 1530, and he remained at the Tudor court until his death in 1560. So he was employed by four successive monarchs, Henry VIII, Edward, Mary, and uh, then Elizabeth I. He was even present at the coronation of Elizabeth before he, he died. 
Mm. And are we to take from his presence in the portraits, is that a, an indicator of his status or the particular affection that Henry VIII had for him? Or how did he make it? In, I mean, these portraits would be, it's not like a snapshot. He'd be sitting there posing, and it's very deliberate that Will Summer would be included. What's he doing in the picture? At first sight, he's not doing that much. He, he's really just standing in the background, and he doesn't at all come across as the archetypal fool or court jester. Mm. There are no cap and bells. There's no colorful clothes or anything like that. He's often dressed in dark clothes, looking quite serious, uh, sometimes with a s- sort of Mona Lisa smile on, on his face. Yeah. But um, he, he looks quite mysterious. So uh, <laughs> he doesn't really look like a typical fool. But uh, at the same time, he appears in so many portraits. And he is more portrayed than many of the aristocrats uh, of, of this era, even. Hmm. So he must have had a, a, a great significance and probably some sort of symbolical or dynastic significance because he appears even posthumously in a lot of the dynastic portraits from the 16th century. So possibly he grew into some sort of mascot or some sort of lucky charm for the English court at this time. And it was important to sort of include him in, in these portraits even after he was dead. Right. Okay, so what do we know about the role that he played in the king's court? Well, the strange thing about Will Summer is that he was incredibly famous after his death. You can find his name popping up in all sorts of literature from the late 16th century, early 17th century. Plays, especially from Shakespeare's period, it was like a vogue of writing and and staging plays about the the old days of Henry VIII. And then Will Summer would would be sort of included as the funny character of those plays, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously. Shakespeare does not include him in his play about Henry VIII, but he has a sort of hidden reference to him in the beginning where he says that you will not be seeing this funny character that you expect to see. So obviously his absence had to be explained away even even in that play. Mm. But this is a mythological character that doesn't have that much to do with the real Will Summer. Will Summer in the in the posthumous myth is a sort of legendary comedian, a witty fool, but if you try to dig deeper and and look at sources from his own lifetime and closer to him, you see that uh, he wasn't anything like that. He was not the sort of typical court fool in in the Shakespearean sense of the word, but something quite different. Mm. And that's what I'm trying to do in the book. Right. So was a fool a recognized profession or official role or where did this begin and how how are we to understand Henry VIII for having such a famous fool? Well, he was very typical for having a fool. Hmm. How to what extent the the role of fool was was official or or like a, an official profession is open to question. Really, there are no payments to Will Summer, and there are a lot of fools that didn't get direct payments. They got gifts, or they had keepers sometimes who look after them and who were paid and so on. But but the <laughs> keeping of fools at courts and even in households was very common all over Europe during the early modern period especially. And it had been since the Middle Ages. Hmm. 
so Henry VIII was a very typical king in that regard because it was very expected to have uh, to employ a court fool. Right. And their job, I guess, was to lift spirits. I, I would imagine there are a lot of, you know, heavy times for any kind of leader, but, you know, in a crisis and so on, he'd be someone there to to lighten things up a little bit. But I also understand that the king spent many hours with him, often alone. Was that to also lift his spirits, or was he relying on him for his judgment or his advice or his read of other people, or do we even know? Could we even answer this kind of question? Well, we have an image of the Renaissance fool that comes to us very much from literature, especially from Shakespeare, the, the fools in, in, in Shakespeare's plays, like King Lear and so on, are the sort of clever fools that they often sort of speak the truth. And mm-hmm. they, they are sometimes even more clever than, than their employers. And this is sort of literary trope that, that doesn't really compare with, with the reality. I, I mean, we, we might think the purpose of the fool, fool was purely entertainment and, and comedy. And it was partly that, but, but I wouldn't say it was primarily that. Because the fool also had an important symbolic and, and ritualistic function almost, at least in this period. The fools were meant to be a sort of contrast to the the majesty and dignity of the monarchs. They, they were there to sort of be different. Uh, I mean, there were apart from fools, there were also court dwarfs, giants, uh, moors, uh, people from, from other parts of the world who were there to sort of simply sort of uh, expose their, their difference. Mm. Some uh, scholars have called fools uh, sort of human pets that were there sort of in the background, lounging about, being cared for, and, and a lot of compassion is, is expressed uh, for these fools. But, but of course, they, they were not sort of regarded always as humans or as equals to the other courtiers. So it's a very sort of ambiguous role. And at a very symbolic role, they, they were sort of representative of the commoners, uh, the lowest people in, in the hierarchy. And they were sort of there to show that the commoners were also present in, in the business of the, of the court, at, at least as an illustration of that, whether they actually were is another matter. Right. That's so interesting. I was trying to figure this out as I was thinking about your book, and I realized I've I've always wondered why kings, and this is basically just getting at the idea of a fool coming from Shakespeare and thinking, oh yeah, the kings had fools. Why would they have them? And I couldn't decide if the king, it was to show that the king was self-confident enough that they could laugh at themselves, or or if it was because the kings were surrounded by yes-men and and really liked having someone who wasn't just going to you know, do whatever he said, but you make it sound more like it was kind of a for display purposes, but it was really almost like trying to show something about the kingdom or or about the the reign that it included, you know, you describe them as pets. That doesn't really fit into either of the ideas that I had had. No, exactly. I think the, the image of the fool changed in the 17th century, and then because it was so much influenced by by this literary image coming from Shakespeare and uh, Erasmus and uh, Thomas More and so on, where the fool is is something different, as you said, as a sort of counterpart to the yes men of the court, a, a man who really speaks the truth to the king. And in a way, there is a sense of that in reality as well, I, I think, because 
the fool could be something similar to a memento mori, I mean, mm. something that sort of reminds the king and the and the aristocracy that this this could have been you, or these people also exist. But there is a different aspect also of, of sort of demonstrating the charity of the court, that the poor and disabled could find a safe haven at court. So there is that dimension too. Right. And I suppose once it got started, then it became, well, I need to have a fool to show that I'm also a king because the previous kings and my fellow monarchs in other places have them. So then it it just sort of feeds off of itself, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And it was self-evident to have a fool. I mean, I I don't think there is any king or, or monarch from the late Middle Ages up until at least the 17th century who did not have a fool. The the practice of keeping fools start to wane in the sort of late seventeenth century. I think Louis the Fourteenth and the Versailles Court and then the Enlightenment and so on. In that world, the keeping of court fools doesn't really fit in. But in some courts and in some countries and especially in sort of rural aristocratic households, the keeping of fools was, was common well into the eighteenth century. Hmm. So it wasn't just limited to kings. No. <laughs> Aristocrats too. So if you could afford to have a fool, you'd have one, I guess. Oh, yes. Thomas More <laughs> had a fool, for instance. Right. <laughs> and did any queens have fools? Yes, yes. So there was the king's fool and then there was the queen's fool. And, uh, and most queens, I think, had fools as well. Commonly, men, the kings had male fools and the queens had female fools. There are exceptions to that rule, but that seems to be the general idea. There was, at the same time as Will Summer, there was a, a, a female fool at the Tudor court called Jane Fool, uh, who was uh, the Queen's fool to um, Anne Boleyn and then Catherine Parr. And uh, Elizabeth I also had uh, uh, both male and female fools. She had a court dwarf called Thomasina, who was given uh, the Queen's old dresses who were sort of cut down and and amended to to suit her. So, yeah, that was very common. Court fools and court wars all over Europe. But the the real sort of record, I think, for keeping fools and dwarfs uh, belonged to the the Spanish court, uh, especially in the the, uh, 17th century. They had an enormous amount of especially court dwarfs, and they are often uh, often depicted in in the paintings of uh, Velazquez, as as you might know. So, yeah, in some countries, it was more common than in other countries. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with more. And in particular, we'll talk more about Will Summer, the fool. Okay, we're back. So, Peter, before we begin with Will Summer here, what's the difference between an artificial fool and a natural fool? Right. So this is one of the most sort of fundamental ideas about fools in the Renaissance. People spoke about artificial fools and natural fools. And it's quite uh, clear cut. The artificial fool was the fool who was a a sort of skilled comedian or or a witty joker. Artificial fools could be intellectuals or writers in Mm. their own right. Right. Natural fools were fools who were employed based on... uh, mostly uh, a learning disability. didn't have to be that. They could be employed based on just being a commoner or having very sort of common or or rural mannerisms. But most often, um, the natural fools were what we would today call 
people with an intellectual disability. Hmm. Right. That's a, a pretty big difference, almost like opposite sides of the spectrum there. Yeah. A lot of the artificial pools also sort of feigned uh, natural folly. They sort of pretended to be right. that natural pools. And that became a sort of game almost. Uh, if, if you could find a, a natural pool that was sort of more sought after than, than a, an artificial pool. Right. So we've sort of been, in a way, we were kind of crediting these monarchs by as if it's this sort of to show their generosity, but to also show they still have a common touch or they still remember uh, what it's like to, you know, be among the people and to be less fortunate and so on. But this almost makes me think a lot of this was just kind of cruel and, and laughing at people for things that were not their fault. Oh, yes, absolutely. We would never, I mean, a lot of the things uh, people subjected uh, fools to in this period is quite hair-raising. And um, and they were often, especially natural fools, they, they were often subjected to uh, a sort of rough-and-tumble type of fun that mm. a lot of writers uh, thought was not really suitable for royal courts. There were writers like Castiglione and Erasmus, like I mentioned, who sort of said, you know, this kind of very uncivilized, rowdy type of humor, um, joking with fools and 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 so on. This is not suitable for kings and, and monarchs. Mm. This shows that, that that type of behavior was very common. But at the same time, fools were, as I said, some people have called them human pets. I mean, there's a lot of compassion and, and sympathy expressed when fools are described, and especially uh, in the case of Will Summer, when he is mentioned by courtiers and diplomats in, in letters and so on, there's a lot of feeling and emotion, and, and they sort of think about him and, oh, I'm, I, I wonder how he is and, and so on. I hope he's doing well. So in that sense, he was a human being as well, even though um, he was also subjected to this mockery and, and, and bullying and so on. So it was very, very uh, ambiguous relationship. Right. It seems like, you know, we say that about people, that you can tell a lot about people by the way they treat their pets. And you can imagine the difference between, you know, you see someone with a dog and they're very loving and they, they take care of the dog and all of that, or, you know, someone who kicks their dog and locks them up in a closet or something. You'd say, well, that person is sadistic and, you know, on their way to be becoming an axe murderer or something. And you could imagine that a king, if you're visiting a king and you see the way that the someone with all that power, you know, if he's kicking his fool and, and making him do humiliating things, it's probably a, a king that you would not want to have as your ruler. Uh, but if you see a king who's, you know, gentle and kind and and uh, treats the fool with a lot of respect and dignity, it's probably someone mm. who would behave that way, you know, or want to behave that way toward his subjects. Exactly. And I think uh, you could probably see that difference uh, in this period as well. Different types of uh, dog owners treating their dogs in different ways and and. and different types of, of monarchs treating their fools in different ways, either very caringly and compassionately or roughly and, and violently. But the thing about Will Summer is that you can see both. And, and uh, maybe this has to do with different sort of situations, different. I mean, he was fooled under different monarchs and so on. So possibly that's the difference there. We, we have some 
sort of circumstantial evidence that King Henry became quite uh, angry and enraged uh, at him in some instances. There's one letter that that says uh, that the king nearly murdered his own fool. Whether this (laughs) regards uh, Will Summer or not uh, is not expressed, but but it's possible that this is Summer that that writing about. He is said to have slandered the king's mistress, and and of course the king becomes very angry and and uh, enraged and uh, um, gets a sort of bout of, bout of rage so that the the fool has to go into hiding. I mean th- there aren't that many references to that kind of thing. But there's also a contemporary writer of Will Summer, John Haywood, who was also at the court of King Henry, and he wrote a, a play called Witty and Witless, which uh, deals a lot with a uh, lot of with with the sort of um, living conditions of fools. And he writes a long list of how the fool is generally treated. Some beat him, some bob him, some doll him, some job him, some tug him by the ass, some lug him by the ears, some spit at him, some spurn him. It's, it's a long list of, of all these various cruelties that the fool yeah. is subjected to. <laughs> and, and, it, and it ends that not even Will Summer, the king's own fool, can avoid this type of treatment. So, yeah. so how, did, how did this happen to this guy? Was he a, an artificial fool or a natural fool? Yeah, well, that's the strange thing, because it's quite difficult to say. The sort of posthumous mythology that, that grew up around him, as I, as, as I said, that sort of cast him in the role of an artificial fool, a very sort of clever, uh, practical joker. But if you look at the contemporary references, it does seem more reasonable that he was a natural fool, uh, and especially uh, a man who was prone to sort of put his foot in his mouth mm. and say things that were indeliberately funny, <laughs> that, that, that the people around him sort of picked up and laughed at and and, uh, quoted, because you can find a lot of quotes of what he has said in contemporary letters and and even printed pamphlets and so on. So the things he said and all his gaps were probably spread around court. And and, uh, I mean, some of these were perhaps touched up a bit in hindsight and so on to to make Mm. them seem more like real jokes. But when you look at them and when you compare them to each other, you can see that this is probably things said by a man who um, is prone to sort of involuntarily put his foot in his mouth and, and say odd things or or things that to others sound stupid or, or foolish. Mm. So uh, in contrast to a Shakespearean fool where they're, they're clever enough to be in on the joke, he might have been somebody who was speaking his mind, but he had a a different way of looking at the world or a different level of emotional intelligence or something. And he would kind of say things that came across as blunt or or rude. Or um, I'm thinking of someone who might comment on someone's appearance without kind of recognizing what that was going to, uh, what kind of effect that was going to produce or who might say, uh, you know, blurt out something that was on his mind, but probably should have been self-censored. Exactly. Yeah. I have a tendency to do that, so I, I feel very much uh, I identify with, with, with his, his lot sometimes, really. And here you are, toiling away at a university. You, you, yes. you were born in the wrong era. You could have been... Uh... I could have been a fool, yes. You know, I'm the next best thing, I suppose. A university but... professor. <laughs> so, uh, do we know anything at all about his childhood or his background? 
Uh, unfortunately, we know very little about that. Yeah. There are a few references to his background, but these come from after his death, and they're very sort of anecdotal, especially there's one that that says his original master was a, a sort of local wealthy merchant uh, in uh, rural England who was convicted of treason by Henry VIII. And so that's why Will Summer came to court. And then this story also says that on the king's deathbed, Will Summer pleaded with King Henry and managed to get his former master pardoned so that his wealth was reinstated and so on. This is a, a tale that is told much later, um, and there's only really one reference to it. But, uh, I mean, it, it could be true, but we don't really know. And, of course, William Summer was very likely a, a commoner, a, a man from a very humble background. And, and with most of those people, it's very difficult to learn anything about where they came from and, and so on. Um, right. So in the case of Will Summer and other of this period, when they sort of come into court, that's when they come into view in the, mm -hmm. the historical record. Yeah. Um, so that's really also why it's very interesting to study fools, because it gives us an opportunity to look at ordinary people, so to speak, in this age when ordinary people were uh, did not really leave a mark in the sources. Right. And did fools tend to have any power? Did Will Summer have power? Was the proximity to the king, did that give him any, uh, you know, were others jealous of that? Or what do we, what do we know about that? I, I don't think he had much power. I mean, the, the story about uh, him getting uh, his former master pardoned by pleading with the king, that of course implies that he, he would have some sort of power. But that's anecdotal evidence. And I don't think really he had much of a status at court, really. Mm. There is even an, a description of him a posthumous description, uh, but uh, quite a reliable one nonetheless, that says that after he entertained the king, he sort of went into a corner of the room to sleep with the spaniels, which sort of suggests that he, he slept in the dog basket, <laughs> which, which I don't know if, if it's to be taken literally or, or more sort of, sort of symbolically for the sort of human pet uh, analogy that, that other people have. Yeah, expressed, but but it's a, a very sort of interesting and uh, remarkable thought, really. Yeah, and it's interesting what Shakespeare chose to do with this figure. It it almost seems like he could have gone a few different ways. He could have used the the fool, as we talked about earlier, in a symbolic way to show how just to basically show this is a mean king or this is a, a friendly and kind ruler. But instead, he kind of chose to focus on this tradition of fools and to really say, well, what if the fool was actually even wittier than they probably were? And what if they were mm. more mm. insightful? And what if they had a kind of influence over the the king that the real fools were probably unlikely to have? It, it almost makes me appreciate mm. kind of Shakespeare taking this idea and amping it up, so to speak, to give us the fools as the characters that he did. Yeah, that's true. And uh, it, it is quite an appealing thing. I, I mean, I suppose in, in some way it's a bit of wishful thinking on, on Shakespeare's part. But, but on the other hand, in most of Shakespeare's plays, he, there is a sort of sympathy for the underdog and the, hmm. and the, the, the common man. So, so in a sense, the fool represents that. And, and uh, Shakespeare perhaps ennobles the, the fool 
uh, to this status of, of a truth teller and and a man who sort of stands in the background and, and uh, knows everything and sees through everyone. I and mean, that's very appealing thought, of course. Right. So we have this literary inheritance of the fool that, as it came through from Shakespeare, do you see any other legacy? Can you draw a line from from the fool to modern comedy? Or, you know, is there anything that did did fools just disappear and, and they're no longer relevant? Or do you see it as we can kind of see something similar in the world today? I think there is a, definitely a legacy, but, but it might not as superficial or as obvious as we might think. I mean, sometimes we think of medieval or early modern fools as a sort of precursor to the stand-up comedian or something like that. I have an image of Woody Allen in a sort of jester costume in one mm. of his films, uh, mm-hmm. a stand-up routine. Um, but but I, but I think the relationship is more complicated and perhaps deeper than that. The, there is a sense in which the sort of disability humor and the taste for natural foolery in the Renaissance led into the sort of penchant for spontaneous or un- unintentional comedy that we see even today. Comedy seems to have been very closely connected to authenticity in a way. I mean, Shakespeare expresses this very well in, in Hamlet. When Hamlet is advising the actors, he, he sort of dismisses fools and clowns who try too hard to make people laugh. And so it, it expresses this case that he doesn't sort of like labored or contrived comedy. And that preference, of course, still exists today. today. We, we like we like deadpan comedy. We like comedians who are very sort of serious in their facial expressions. And, and we like sort of unintentional comedy. So in a way, that was the ideal of the of the Renaissance as well. That the sort of the best comedian is one who does not know he's he is a comedian. I think that sort of feeds into uh, modern culture as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I'm a big uh, fan of the Beatles, and in documentaries you'll see this where John Lennon will sometimes on stage he'll look at the other you know the other bandmates and. He will then go into kind of an act where he he acts like he has a a club foot or or a, a, and he he makes a face that makes it look like he's <laughs> developmentally disabled. He'll kind of stomp around the stage a little bit, and you know that I've seen Ringo and Paul comment on this in interviews, and you know they would say, well, he wasn't trying to be mean or or mean spirited or or cruel or anything. He was just trying to to give us a laugh or something. And I'm thinking about it now in this context and thinking, you know, he would do it on stage when they were, Mm. you know, being screamed at by thousands of people and, and applauded. And, and I'm wondering if it was kind of similar to uh, what was happening in these courts where a feeling of there needs to be some, some relief to this tension or, or, you know, we have all this, this pomp and circumstance, but then we also need something for some, you know, to bring us all back down to earth. And, and maybe that was kind of his psychological reaction to feeling like, well, these people in the crowd are treating me like I'm something incredibly special, but I'm just a, I'm just a guy like they are. And in (laughs) fact, you know, I, I, I'm willing to do this or, you know, here I am, just, just, just me, just a person. I don't know. Does that, <laughs> does that seem like it strikes any chords with you? 
Oh yeah, that's very interesting. I I I I didn't really know that actually. I mean, I I seem to recall seeing John Lennon joking a lot and and not being as serious as as the other ones, especially when there are the other ones are trying to be serious. He he tends to sort of try and and just make a fool of of everyone. Right, right. Um, and this and, says maybe maybe more about John Lennon's psychology than yeah than, yeah than then. anything else. But but <laughs> but yeah, I mean I mean in a way there is a parallel here. Of, of trying to sort of counterbalance the majesty or the or the the admiration that they're subjected to in a way. So in a way, it expresses the the need to sort of let the steam go. Right, right. And I, I, I know there's a clip where he, and this is just more of a joke. I don't think he meant this literally, but he he does say, uh, "I play the guitar, and sometimes I play the fool." Yeah, John Lennon was more of a fan of. Of you know Goon Show and Monty mm-hmm. Python and things like that, but than of music. Yeah, <laughs> seems right. Sometimes <laughs> he seems to have preferred being a comedian, and then he wrote these nonsense poems and things. So I think, yeah, there was a side to him that that really wanted to sort of pierce the bubble of of things and uh, and so on. And that's the sort of thing that's that probably speaks to a lot of mid twentieth century culture, which was trying to do all these things when you look right. at comedy and so on. And yeah, there is a cruelty to this comedy as well, especially in in the way John Lennon sort of tricks the other band members and and makes them sort of a bit awkward uh, and so on. He 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 could be a bit cruel like that, mm. and that's also a parallel because not just were were fools subjected to cruelty. I mean, they could be quite cruel and violent themselves. Mm. And there are a few references to Will Summer and other fools of that period. Uh, actually being violent and even sort of beating other fools or or beating someone who is taunting them and so on. So so there is, I mean, in this foolery and in this strange, surreal comedy, there is probably a strain of some sort of aggression. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's male aggression, perhaps it is, but, but certainly aggression, mm-hmm. definitely. And I mean, that's very evident in, in stand-up comedy and everything we see today. Right, insult comedy and and comedy that has always we're trying to get away from it now, but comedy that that is almost like bullying. It's punching people when they're down. Exactly, mm. and sometimes uh, a member of the audience goes up on stage and punches the comedian, as we've seen. Yeah, right, <laughs> fighting back. <laughs> so I, I had in mind this question of which you would rather be, a king or a fool. But I, I realize now I was really taking that from the idea of the fool in Shakespeare being sort of the wise, um, you know, the, the one who knows more than the king or who kind of can exert mm. influence but doesn't have all the responsibilities of power and, and all that. I can't imagine mm. hearing about what the life of a fool is really like. I can't imagine that you or anyone else would really choose to be a fool uh, more than a king, but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but maybe, uh, but, uh, I guess, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe a fool in a Shakespeare play. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, the book is called "Fool: In Search of Henry VIII's Closest Man," and the author is our guest, Peter K. Anderson. Thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And finally, today, Ed Simon. After we talked about his personal experiences with sobriety and John Milton, I asked him this special question. 
Okay, we're joined now by Ed Simon, the author of Heaven, Hell, and Paradise Lost. Ed, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. I love this question. This is, I was thinking about this because um, it's such a difficult question. It's one yeah. of those like a deceptively hard ones. <laughs> and uh, you want to like, I want to come up with something like, it sounds really good. You know, I don't want it to be, I'd be like, infinite jest. Of course. No. Um, so I was, I was going through it and uh, I think the last book I'd ever want to read would be uh, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Oh, I think that would be my final one. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I went on a couple of different titles for this. I don't think it would be like a novel. I get like too. I love narrative. I love being enmeshed in story and kind of being in a world that's been created. But like novels are obviously so singular and individual. And I don't mm-hmm. know that there's any story that I'd like know that that's yes. my last story. This is it. This is the one. Exactly. It'd be hard for it to be expansive enough and to give your mind room to roam enough. Exactly. So I knew it had to be poetry. And then I thought, well, could I do like an anthology? And I thought, that's so dorky to do like the, <laughs> and I love like the Oxford Anthology of American Literature or whatever. But I was like, and it's curated by, you know, David Lehman, who's a great scholar and, and critic, but like it's not, you know, it's a different sort of thing. So I, for me, it would just be uh, Leaves of Grass, 1855 edition in its entirety. Whitman, I think, is one of my, uh, maybe my, biggest poetic touchstone, you know, mm. bigger than Milton, probably like him and Dickinson, honestly. And and I think with uh, Leaves of Grass, I, I read it as secular scripture. Mm-hmm. I always thought that like Walt Whitman was the guy who like looked at the world and was like, God may or may not exist in the way that we think that, you know, he does or doesn't exist. There may or may not be life after death. Like he was very much like an agnostic and materialist in a lot of ways. And then from things that could be like, very despairing. I think he kind of uh, weaves this incredibly hopeful, transcendent, universal poem that touches on like every aspect of life uh, at the time he was living, but he writes in a way that is almost like eternal and, and timeless. Yeah, That's a singular poetic voice where it seems like it's inside of you or something, or he's talking to you. It's, a, it's eerie what Whitman accomplished. So I think for me, because I don't think the the Bible would quite do it. I mean, I love the I love portions of the Bible as well, but like, you know, I don't want to be like halfway through Leviticus or something before yeah. I die. Yeah, I would do Leaves of Grass and Song of Myself in particular. You know, Whitman. It's funny because he's so famous for his lists and his catalogs and his mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of marching through details and it all running together. But so much of him is more. I would characterize it more as an approach or as yeah. a, an outlook, a, a viewpoint, and just a kind of a, a way of thinking about existence. And even those details, it always feels like it's about abundance. It's not about mm-hmm. defining or pinning down or limiting, but about kind of celebrating the hugeness of, even more than life, I would say, the hugeness of the universe and, and existence. So I could see where that would be kind of the right frame of mind to be in as you get ready for the next stage of our journey. I think that would be, it would, and it would make me feel better. I feel like he's actually, yeah. you know, I when you know there is no death, the small sprout shows there is no death. I'm totally butchering that. But I feel like that sensibility is like, you don't need to know if there's life after death or not, because there's something hopeful. Even if there's not, there's something hopeful 
in Whitman's poem because of his incredibly expansive, abundant, as you said, way of approaching existence and his, you know, almost pantheistic sense of, of what reality is. Mm. A lot of people, I think, are going to get smaller and, and more cramped and, and more pinched as things dwindle away. You're going to approach it with exuberance. I'm jumping in with Whitman. <laughs> okay, Ed Simon, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much. Okay, Leaves of Grass, an excellent choice. So that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Ed Simon for the cameo appearance and to the interns for their lovely ideas about the dropping a letter and coming up with a new title and of course to peter anderson his book on the fool is available wherever you get your books we've got some good episodes coming up soon so please do join us again i'm pausing there because i just realized i should probably tell you what some of those episodes are give you a reason to come back how about another look at a story by dh lawrence a stranger one with mike palindrome and a look, a book that's all about the history of chapters. We'll talk to the author of that book. We've got Margaret Cavendish coming up soon. A look at the venerable Bede, who that guy was and what he was up to, and Henry David Thoreau and his attitude toward work. We'll be looking at Wordsworth's Circle. We've got modernist novels. Oh, so many good at Byron. The Letters of Byron. We've got Machiavelli coming up with an Italian, maybe our first Italian guest. I've had a few professors of Italian, but maybe this is the first actual Italian. I'd have to think about that. We've got an episode on Virgil coming up, including an interview with a biographer of Virgil, who also was the first woman to translate the Aeneid for publication. You can get lots of translations of the Aeneid. Only one of them is by a woman. We will talk to her. It's another great talk that I had. So, lots of good things to look forward to, both in the rest of this year and in the new year. So please do join us again for those. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.